Hello, my name is Kirsty Styles, and welcome to the weekly economics podcast where this week we are hosting our very first debate and it's not an easy one. It's over the EU referendum just as people go to the polls on Thursday. I'm joined by John Hillary, Executive Director of War on Want and the Green Party's Caroline Lucas MP to thrash it out. The British people will go to polling stations across our islands and cast their ballots in the way we've done in this country for generations. Go back down the river because you're up one without a canoe or a paddle. It is a choice between believing in the possibility of hope and change or accepting that we have no choice but to knuckle under. We believe the European Union has brought investment, jobs and protection for workers, consumers and the environment. And the truth is that if we vote to leave, we'll be in an economically stronger position. You cannot succeed in securing financial stability. Let us remain, let us fight our corner. I urge you to vote leave on June the 23rd. So hello, Caroline. Hello, John. Welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast. And thanks for joining us for our first ever debate. It's on the EU referendum with people going to the polls on Thursday, the 23rd of June, just a few days after this broadcast. We're here in Portcullis House right next to Parliament. Uh, So if you hear any bells going off, it isn't us. Caroline, you're going to be presenting the pro-European case uh, for today. And John, you're going to be putting forward a more Eurosceptic view. Uh, We're going to have opening statements of a minute for both of you. And we've flipped a coin. So John... If you'll start. Thanks very much. Yeah, right at the beginning of this, um, War on Want, my organisation, took a decision not to be campaigning either in or out, but to use the opportunity to to put out some education there, to put out some experience, which we've had in my own particular case, um, campaigning against the European Union's trade and other policies for the last 20 years. And I think that's really what's important here, because 99.9% of the electorate who are going to be voting in this referendum have never had any direct experience of what the European Union institutions really do or mean. And of course, Caroline has much better experience than most people on this. But I thought from our point of view, it was really important to say to people, there is something more to this than just a fuzzy, let's be voting to be European. This is not about a referendum to be European. It's about a referendum to be subject to the institutions of the European Union. And that, I think, is what we should be focusing on. Expertly timed, Caroline. Over to you. Thanks so much, Kirsty. Um, I think what's at stake in this referendum is who gains power from whichever outcome that we have. So if there's a Brexit, who gains power from that? And what worries me is that I think it's going to be the right of the Tory party and UKIP. And if that leads to the economy taking a hit and a recession, that means it's my constituents in Brighton who are going to be having to struggle even harder uh, to make ends meet. And I have to say, too, that I can't see any of the major challenges that we face today being easier to tackle if we're doing it on our own rather than doing it alongside our EU colleagues, whether that's climate change, the refugee crisis, or indeed the trying to control the excesses of the international financial system. I think on all of those issues, they're going to be much easier to tackle by working together. I'm not going to sit here and say the EU is perfect. Of course it isn't. It does need to be reformed. It needs to be more democratic. So does Westminster. We need to work at both of those things, but to be able to change it, you need to be in it. 
Wonderful. So uh, thank you both for those opening statements. First of all, we're going to focus on the economics of EU membership in this debate uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, That's no easy task if you've been following the headlines. Um, So as usual on this podcast, we have a slightly broader view of uh, what economics is made up of. Uh, First, let's focus on one of the big economic debates of the referendum campaign. That's trade. Uh, My first question to you both is how will leaving the EU or remaining uh, affect our trade with other countries? Caroline, if you can go first, as you went second at the start. Thank you. Well, you'll have heard, um, probably until you're sick and tired of it, um, the uh, main campaign telling us how much of our trade depends on um, our relationship with the European Union, our access to the single market. But actually, what concerns me as somebody who really cares about small and medium-sized enterprises, for example, is about how do we make it easier for them to be able to deal with some of the bigger companies. And I think the fact that the EU provides some uh, some, some, some basic rules, some key um, protections, which means that, for example, if you're a, a, a small or medium-sized enterprise based in Brighton, then you're not having to deal with 27 different sets of, of um, uh, import policies. You can just do with one. I think that helps to even up the power between the smaller companies and the big companies. So I think that in terms of being able to um, improve the quality of trade and certainly ensuring that smaller businesses can get their access to, then we're better off inside the EU. And John? Well, one of the interesting things which both Caroline and I have worked on for a long time is the European Union's relations in trade with other countries outside Europe. And I think that's really an indication of how the European Union has played an incredibly negative role on behalf of transnational capital. I mean, the horrific savagery with which it's imposed economic partnership agreements on the countries of Africa, the Caribbean, the Pacific, and indeed the raw materials initiative, which has opened up those companies, those countries to big companies from Europe is an example of where actually when you want to break down the economics of the European Union, you've got to think of the political economy. Who's gaining from this? And every single time it's big business. And that's the trajectory of the European Union at the moment. The problem for us, of course, is it's also the trajectory which our current government in this country also wants to take us on. And that's where any talk of what happens in the future has got to look at the new trading relationships that we would have to negotiate post-Brexit. And I think that's where it comes down to it. We, we, we have that constant problem that this is not really our debate. We're not being offered the sort of alternative we would like to see in this debate, which is of trade justice. Instead, we're being shown these two predatory approaches. And really, I think the question comes really down to power, as you said, Caroline. Where is it that we can best fight the power of these transnational corporations? Mm. I mean, I I completely agree with you that, in a sense, the two options on the table are both pretty distasteful. But the decision we have to make is, are we going to have a better chance of being able to contain the power of transnational corporations by being part of the EU? Or do we really think we're going to be able to do it better as a single country on our own? And I just can't see how that latter scenario adds up. If you're going to try to control transnational corporations, then you need to have some power yourself. You need to have some weight. And that's what the EU can give us. And so I think that when you've seen, um, for example, the role of the European Parliament, which on this issue is has generally been as a constraining influence on perhaps some of the ambitions of the right-wing governments who currently sit around the table at the European Council. I think you also see that there's a way in which we can try to to ground the power of these transnational corporations by bringing it back home. And I think the European Parliament has been central to that. And I think that the EU actually has gone much further to deal with things like the Panama Papers that just about to set up a whole new inquiry into tax evasion and tax avoidance. You need 
need to be doing it at that level as a single country on your own. I just don't think you're going to be able to tackle that power. So speaking of trade, uh, you're both against the uh, TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. Do you think that remaining in the EU or indeed leaving uh, would make us more or less likely to sign up uh, to TTIP or, and any other similar trade deals? If I can come to you first, John. Sure. I mean, this is one of Warren Watt's big campaigns at the moment, and we've been following it very carefully. I mean, on a very easy level, it's clear that if we come out of the EU, then the UK is free of TTIP. What it doesn't answer is what we'd get if we weren't going to be having TTIP, would we get something worse? And I think what's interesting for us is that it begins to open up the whole prospect of what we'd be fighting for here and on what terrain. Clearly, again, you'd have a current government, whether or not under David Cameron or Boris Johnson or any of the other Tories, who would be pressing for the most neoliberal, regressive form of trade policy with no reference to social or environmental standards. However, that's exactly what the European Union is doing. And in fact, going back to your last point, Caroline, the problem for us is that not only is the council the heads of the 28 member states doing it, and the commission, of course, the unelected ones who have the right of initiative to drive this through, but they're being supported by the European Parliament, who seem to have absolutely no qualms about signing away all of our rights. And this is where it comes down to the the difficulty for us who are campaigning so hard with all of our sister organisations across Europe. We're coming up again and again and again against this democratic barrier, we have no levers to be able to challenge that power imbalance. So we're under no illusion that it would be better coming out for the current lot, but at least we are on a a field where we believe we can even up the forces to challenge for a better trade policy. And the nice news on this, just to finish on this one, when President Obama came over, of course, he said to everybody in this country, oh, if you vote for Brexit, you're going to be at the back of the queue for TTIP. And we all thought, "Mm, sounds good. Don't mind if we do. Well, on on TTIP, I want to say that I've spent uh, many years of my life campaigning against it and similar uh, trade agreements too. So I think the question before us is where is our best hope of being able to defeat TTIP? And actually, I disagree with John on this. I think that if you look at what's happening across the EU, you've got 250,000 people marching in the streets of Berlin. You've had 3 million people across the EU signing a petition against the uh, TTIP. You've had sufficient uh, mobilisation in France to mean that the French government is looking like it's going to do a very good job of blocking TTIP. So actually, on one level, you could say it's because we've got this potential to be working with allies right across the EU that we've got our best chance of of stopping it. But also, as John said, let's beware of what we might be replacing it with. The thing, the the worst thing about TTIP is the investor state dispute settlement mechanism. This mechanism that allows private corporations to sue democratically elected governments in private courts if they believe that a government is putting up a so-called barrier to trade, something that we might think is an environmental standard or health and safety as a barrier to trade as far as corporations are concerned. Now, that investor state dispute settlement process is already in plenty of bilateral trade agreements. And you can be sure that a government under Gove or Boris or Cameron will be putting them into successive trade agreements that the UK signs up to here. So I think anybody who thinks that by withdrawing from the EU, we're going to end up with a lovely, cuddly, friendly trade policy in the UK is really in a fantasy land. But I mean, I think that let's be clear, nobody thinks that. I mean, nobody and anybody I've met has ever argued that it's going to become better to come out. The key thing is whether we have the terrain to struggle for it. And I think what's also important here 
here is that this isn't just a vote for the next two, three years. This is a long-term vote, probably the only one we're going to have in our lifetimes as to whether we're in or out of the EU. And that means, therefore, it's not just about what Gove or Johnson or any of the current Tories would do. It's about a long-term dispensation where we would say, do we take back the power to struggle for that ourselves? So I think it's important, while I completely agree, there's nothing to suggest that we're going to be heading into nirvana anytime soon. What it would be doing is it would be giving us back the power potentially to argue for that, even in a country like ours, which has traditionally been the most regressive, whether it's been Tory or Labour administrations. I just think we would have more influence in terms of other countries having their influence on us if we were still within the EU, that I think that we could be making more of an alliance between civil society movements across the EU that has already been done incredibly effectively. Again, I think it's much easier to do it alongside our colleagues. So let's move on to uh, jobs then. Uh, how do you think that staying in the EU or leaving uh, would affect the number and the types of uh, employment in the UK? We've heard a lot about this in the, in the media. Caroline, to you first. Well, again, you, you'll have heard plenty from um, the campaign so far in terms of, of, of making the, the point that we've got more jobs as a result of our membership of the EU and the figures are disputed. But um, I think it's clear that as a result of our membership of the EU, there are more jobs. Um, and also, crucially, in terms of the quality of those jobs and making sure that there's a level playing field, um, the fact that workers' rights are agreed across the EU means that there is um, some resistance to the kind of race to the bottom. Because what you find, obviously, is private companies who will try to play off one country against another to try to find the cheapest place for them to set up to do business. And so that's why it's so important to have workers' rights right across the EU to make sure that there is that minimum standard below which those corporations cannot bargain downwards. And John? Yeah, no, there is the issue of quantity and quality. And we've heard a lot of figures um, banded about. One of the, the calculations which came out of the European Parliament's policy um, division just a few weeks ago was that if the UK stays in and we have TTIP, there will be about 150,000 jobs lost in the UK as a direct result of that. Now, we always take these statistics with a pinch of salt, but we actually play it back to the people in the European Commission who are trying to sell us TTIP as a great jobs and growth idea that actually there's going to be a massive cost. And that again comes back to the, to the, to the position which I think we both share, Caroline, that the issue here is about the distribution of power and wealth within Europe. And that goes to the heart of what the jobs issue is. Clearly, for capital, they love the idea of this constant ability to undercut the rights of workers. And the European Court of Justice, as you know, has delivered a series of cases which now make it more difficult to get collective bargaining in the European Union because it's all under the logic of the movement of capital at the expense of labour. So I think for us there's a, a, a profound difficulty in here because the gains made in the post-Maastricht years have now been eroded and the talk of social Europe, which was so important in the early 90s, has completely dissolved. And it's place we have global Europe, which is of course what I, Peter Mandelson I disagree that it's, that it's completely dissolved. I, I think certainly we need to fight for social Europe, but we've got colleagues uh, across the rest of the EU who are joining us in that fight. And we've got the Greens in the European Parliament and the Socialists in the European Parliament, and even some of the Liberals, all of whom have that same uh, agenda. 
And, and I guess, John, you, you wouldn't be arguing that if we came out of the EU, we would actually have better workers' rights. I mean, I, I take your point that we're not just measuring things just on the next three or four years, but we're looking for longer than that. But if you think about the damage that could be done even in a short time by a, a, a government headed up by, let's say, Boris Johnson, who's made it very clear he wants to get rid of all of the social chapter, you know, we would see a, a huge amount of uh, destruction that can be done in a very short time. And again, if there's going to be trade, and we haven't talked about what the trade arrangement would be post-Brexit, but if there was still to be trade involving the single market, then if you didn't have that floor of minimum standards, I think you absolutely could be seeing a spiralling downwards of conditions. Just just one tiny um, response on that. I mean, I think it's important to look at the moment that the floor that there is in the European Union is below what we have in the UK. And that's as a result, not on the European Union giving us anything, but as a result of the struggle and the fight that's taken place in this country. So in terms of maternity leave, maternity pay, paid holiday, we have far better for higher standards than in the rest of the European Union. So we have fought for that and we've gained it. And I think we should have confidence that we as a people can stand up to the power of our governments. And, and, and the upsurge in energy and dynamism which took place after May last year when the current administration were elected tells me that there's a real appetite for that fight in this country. I, I don't doubt the appetite, but I do want to challenge you on the issue of whether or not all of our rights have been as a result of, of, of UK work alone, and, and, and lots has been, but there are certainly key um, court cases and key moments when the EU, for example, made it not just equal pay for uh, equal work, but equal pay for work of equal value. And then they actually pursued that in the courts to make sure that actually happened. So I think that the EU has given us something extra. And yes, I accept that in some level that the floor is lower than our own domestic policy, but what it's done is to rise up the, the, the standards in other countries in Eastern Europe, whose, whose floor at that point would have been absolutely, you know, rock bottom. So what we need to be doing is, is, is ratcheting up standards for people outside the EU as well as inside. And I think this is actually part of a bigger kind of um, philosophical debate about, about our membership of the EU. We talk about it all the time as to what benefits us. I think there's also space to have a debate about what benefits the rest of the EU. And I think the, e the UK has actually an important role to play in, in terms of, of helping other countries increase their standards too. So we're not going to have that philosophical debate right now, Caroline, because we're coming on to immigration, which is uh, one of the major debates for good or ill uh, that's, uh, that's raised during this referendum. Uh, so focusing on the economics of immigration, uh, how would leaving the EU or remaining in it impact on immigration? John, you first. Yeah, this is one where I think it's important to look at how the economics of it is not actually the full argument. Because if you look, for example, of what the, the right wing have said, is that as a result of bringing in lots of lower paid immigrant um, workers from the east of Europe, we've been able to have the miracle, as they put it, of growth without wage inflation. And therefore, without wage inflation, you've been able to keep interest rates down. And therefore, you have this virtuous cycle, which, of course, for people who are in, in the poorest parts of Britain, has been seen as a real challenge. And I think we need to be absolutely clear on that. And I do agree with you, Caroline, again, in terms of it not just being about people in this country. I, I spent quite a lot of time in, in, in 
discussion with people in Poland last year in relation to this, where, of course, they've had a fantastically um, mirror reverse of this, that by the export of a lot of their labour, the, rel- the relative balance of power within Poland has shifted away from capital towards labour. And as a result of that local pressure, they've been able to force wages up and better terms conditions. So I think that we wouldn't want to be swayed by any of these economic arguments on their own. Because I think that's what gets us into the sort of very nasty, objectionable language which you see in the current mainstream debate. What we should be saying here is that there is a much greater problem which is nothing to do with immigration, and that's the hollowing out of manufacturing, the hollowing out of society in this country. And I think that is experienced by a lot of people who don't have the luxury of, of, of privileged jobs or secure lifestyles as being something they don't understand where it's happening, and there needs to be a huge amount of investment and serious attention to the reality of that problem if we're not to see this mass exodus of people voting for UKIP and other much nastier parties in this whole debate. And that, of course, I think is where we all unite in saying the debate and the tenor of it is absolutely the opposite of what we would like to see as being this idea of opening up markets and closing down borders. We want to reverse that. Very much agree with much of what uh, John has has just said. I mean, I think in terms of the economics of, of, of immigration and the way in which no doubt the private corporations would love to see wages being driven down, I think what we need to be doing is making sure that there is a minimum wage that is properly enforced and increased. And also longer term, think about a vision whereby we have a, a minimum wage, not just in the UK, but across the EU. Obviously, it wouldn't be at the at a, at a common level to begin with. But I think that's something in terms of, of the future of the EU, we could be looking forward to a way in which we try to uh, ensure that that happens right across the EU. But in terms of, of freedom of movement more, more broadly... You know, if we have access to the single market, then freedom of movement is part and parcel of that deal. And you'll hear a lot of people kind of saying that in a very reluctant way. And I think we need to turn that on its head and actually celebrate the freedom of movement. I think it's the most extraordinary gift that we can live and learn, love and, and work and study in 27 other countries. And that when other EU nationals exercise their right to come to our country, that they make a huge contribution to our society, our community, our culture, and economically too. So often, as, as John has kind of alluded to in this really nasty debate, it's made to sound as if, you know, every single social problem in the UK is as a result of, of, of immigration. And clearly at its successive governments who failed to be investing enough in our education system, our schools and, 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 and housing. And when it comes to something like the NHS, you're far more likely to find EU nationals actually treating you in the NHS than, than standing in front of you in the queue to, to get into it. So I think that at the same time as recognising that uh, immigration brings this, this, this net economic benefit as well as a cultural and social benefit, I think we should be ring-fencing the finance that comes in from that and investing it very specifically in those places that are experiencing change most rapidly so that you actually get a win-win, that you're investing in housing, education, in leisure centres, in community centres, so that everybody can see the benefit from this. Thank you both very much uh, for tackling one that is, certainly isn't an easy one uh, in the run-up to the referendum. So uh, one topic we've not heard uh, as much about um, is uh, in this campaign is the environment, uh, perhaps surprisingly. Uh, how would leaving the EU or remaining in it uh, impact on our environmental policy? Caroline, you first. 
Well, first of all, thank you for at least putting it on the agenda, because you're right, it's been conspicuous by its absence in the main debates. And that's very odd in a sense, because if you ever needed an issue through which to see the importance of the EU, then it would be the environment. It's very clear that environmental problems are cross-boundary by their very nature. You don't have environmental problems queuing up politely at passport control waiting for their uh, papers to be checked and therefore we need to have the kind of uh, facility whereby we can tackle problems like air pollution, um, marine pollution and so forth across borders and certainly if I look at my own constituency in Brighton, the air pollution that people suffer from there, some of that is being blown across the channel from France so one single country can't possibly tackle those issues on their own. And if I think about climate change in particular, again, an issue that certainly individual countries will struggle to, to address on their own, although the Paris climate talks were not as ambitious as, as either John or I would have wanted, no, not, not at all, nonetheless, I think they were more um, successful than we at some time feared. And that is as a result of the role that the EU played, first of all, in terms of ratcheting up the level of ambition within the EU uh, and then using that to uh, leverage up ambition amongst other member states. And the UK, to be fair, played a pretty positive role in that whole effort. So I think when you're dealing with environmental problems, which are by their very nature cross-boundary, then you're going to need an institution that looks pretty much like the EU in order to enable you to do it. I completely agree that we need to do it with other countries, but the EU is not just any old con collection of countries sitting around a table, as indeed they did in Paris. The European Union is a specific neoliberal capitalist programme, which is driving more and more towards the interest of capital, and at the moment, trying to downgrade even the commitments made just a couple of months ago in Paris. And one of the examples of that is the Fuel Quality Directive, which was introduced in order to try to deal with exactly the same problem problems of pollution that you've alluded to, Caroline. And I think that's an incredibly clear example to us. Immediately, the European Commission had a chance to downgrade, to water down those provisions, particularly relating to the tar sands in Canada, which originally had been sort of excluded, saying that this is the worst type, the dirtiest type of oil. We can't have this coming in. As a result of the business lobby pressuring the European Commission, that's already been downgraded. And we've seen more and more and more of these sort of watering down of the provisions from the European central institutions. And I think that's the real concern for us, that whatever gains there would have been in the past, when this idea of a more progressive, the social Europe and environmentally friendly Europe was there, that's now being knocked out by the new competitive Europe, and not just any old competitive Europe, but one which is hardwired into the DNA of the European Union through the Treaty of Lisbon. And this is the problem, that the European Union isn't just a group of countries sitting around a table with a nice agenda. The European Union is a neoliberal capitalist program run by the bosses for the bosses, where everybody else is on the outside desperately trying to knock their way in. And that's where the environment, as well as labour rights and social rights, are now being clearly put second to the interests of capital. But empirically, it is the case that our strongest nature protection, for example, the Habitats Directive, the Birds Directive, is coming as a result of the EU. And it is our own politicians here, people like George Osborne, who are talking about those jewels in the crown of nature protection being ridiculous costs on burden and threatening to get rid of them as soon as he can. So I wouldn't disagree with you that there is a battle going on at the heart of the EU, if you like, on the one hand with the neoliberal forces lined up. But on the other hand, I think that you're downplaying 
the sense that there is also a fight back going there. I mean, it's interesting that the European trade unions, uh, the environmental uh, organizations in Europe, many of the MEPs are part of that fight back. You mentioned the Lisbon Treaty, which of course was the treaty that enshrined the, the competitiveness. Before that, you'll remember that the whole kind of Gothenburg process, which was about social Europe. And yes, there's a fight going on there. And one of the reasons that it's so tightly fought is because if you look at who is sitting around the table at the Council of Ministers, it is a majority of right-wing neoliberal governments. And not surprisingly, if you've put into the EU right-wing neoliberal bigotry, that's what you get out of the EU. But it doesn't have to be that way. And throwing away those institutions because we don't like the current incumbents of them, I think is just... Is, is, is just reckless. And I remember a time when it was just only for a few years and it was when it was the EU15, but there was a time when a, a large number of the environment ministers were actually from the Green Party from many different countries around the table. And during those kind of halcyon days, for a while, some incredibly strong policies came out of the EU as a direct result of getting those voices in. And I think we let our own government off the hook if we keep blaming you know, this, this Brussels process. The reason that there are so many right-wing policies coming out of the EU is because there are so many right-wing government sitting around the table. So when this referendum is over, let's go and fight to make sure we get some better governments at the table in the first place. Well, we'll definitely be fighting on the 24th of <laughs> June, whatever happens, I can assure you that. But there is just one tiny thing to add there. It's not just the representation of the countries around the table, it's the institutions themselves. And if you think of the horrific treatment of the Greek people, obviously Ireland, Latvia, Poland, all the other, uh, and Portugal, all the others who've been forced into this horrific austerity, that was things like the ECB, so the European Central Bank, unelected, unaccountable, and the Euro finance ministers, the Eurogroup, these are not bodies, including with the European Commission, who are amenable to change from the outside through elections. And I think that's where we, I completely agree with you, if we had a complete reversal, we would still be left, though, with these institutions right at the centre of the European programme, which are not amenable to change from the outside and have all the power to be able to introduce new directives and also to carry them through. So next we're on to one of the very exciting and slightly jargony areas of uh, European policy. That's the common agricultural policy and the common fisheries policy. What would happen to those if we left the EU? John, you first? Yeah, well, I mean, the common, I think we'll probably have a, a, a lot of agreement on this. Both Caroline and I will probably see both of these policies as being deeply, deeply flawed. But what's interesting, again, about the common agricultural policy, as well as all of the trouble it's caused to countries outside Europe, it's also represented an important understanding of how the money we give to Europe is then siphoned back in a particular class way. So that the money which we give into Europe, which is huge amounts, goes towards the common agricultural policy. When it comes back to Britain, goes to the biggest landowners. And there was a fascinating thing when Tony Blair was in power, where you ended up with a proposal to cap the amount of subsidy being given back to farmers, to big farmers in this country. And Tony Blair was the one who prevented that going through because he said it would be adversely disadvantageous to the royal family because the royal family obviously get a lot of this money, as do big business, as do the big landowners. So again, if we came out of the European Union, that would obviously be one extremely serious amount of money we were no longer giving over. And what we could do here is have a very strong campaign to try and see that it would be small-scale farmers, organic conversion, which would get the subsidies, rather than us giving it to the Duke of Westminster and other massive landowners, who, let's be frank, don't need the extra cash. 
But John, can you really imagine a government under Boris or not Gove Boris, giving that money that to small farmers? No, no what would happen is, I'll tell you what would happen, is that we would stop being part of the common agricultural policy. That means that there will be no support and subsidy going to our farmers, including our smaller farmers. And basically a free market in agriculture would see the end of, of farming as we know it in this country. I mean, any sense of environmental stewardship or support for animal welfare or support for uh, you know local farming would be absolutely destroyed so I'm not going to sit here and defend the common agricultural policy. And I've said before, the problem with it is not so much that it's common, but it's the actual policies that are there. They are changing slowly, not fast enough. But it is true that now there's less support for overall production, which was a major problem because that production then often got dumped in poorer countries and completely undermined their livelihoods. That is changing, not fast enough, but it is changing so that the money now is going to support different elements of environmental stewardship. The amount of money that's allocated to environmental stewardship is up to our own government to decide. And so it's interesting that in England, for example, they decided to put far less money into it than they did in Scotland and Wales. So a lot of this is back down to domestic choices too. But I would just underline the point that however much you know, we are going to keep up the campaign to ensure more of the, the common agricultural policy is about supporting smaller farmers, environmentally friendly farming and so forth. If we withdrew, then I think we would just see an absolute free market in agriculture. I think we would see an absolute, um, you know, complete uh, downgrading of any concern about, about local environmental impacts, um, animal welfare. It would be a pretty grim picture. And if you add to that the role that the EU has played in terms of things like standing up for a ban on some of the most damaging pesticides, neonicotinoids, which uh, damage our bee populations, for example, or the stand that they've taken against GMOs, they have been taking that position against successive governments. This isn't just a complaint about this government. Successive British governments have wanted those kinds of damaging environmental problems, uh, policies, rather, and it has been the EU that has stood up against them. Can I get you just to address fisheries very quickly? Seems like we like agriculture slightly more. Yeah, again, I mean, <laughs> it, it's interesting from our point of view, the fisheries side of it is particularly important outside the European Union waters as well. I mean, as you know, most of the European waters have been fished dry, and so they've had to send the trawlers outside. And the west coast of Africa has been absolutely ravaged as a result of the common fisheries policy suddenly being exported, or the impact of it, exported to other countries. And you've seen a situation where small-scale farmers in Senegal and other countries have been absolutely wiped out as a result of this deep water fishing going on by European trawlers offshore. We have a particular problem with it in the waters of occupied Western Sahara, where the European Union has done a dirty deal with Morocco, which is currently the military occupying force in Western Sahara, to take the fish of a country which they've got absolutely no right to be in charge of. So again, how can you have this type of predatory capitalism, which the European Union represents, with absolutely no care for the impact that it causes outside European borders. I would simply come back and say that if you've got predatory capitalist government sitting around the table in Brussels, then you get predatory capitalist outcomes. I wish it were not the case. I rest my case that we need to get out there and change the governments. But to throw away the institutions, I say, would be reckless. So we've almost come to the end of our time uh, with both of you. Thank you so much uh, for um, such a um, detailed and wide-ranging debate. Just time for your closing statements uh, of a minute uh, from both of you. Uh, John, if I can get you to go first. Sure. Well, I think, again, in this debate, we're really offered two alternatives which would 
deeply, deeply unsatisfactory, unattractive and unappealing. And for us, it's a question of looking at where you're going to get best traction and what terrain is best to fight against the neoliberal programmes which have been put in place by either the European Union or the British government of whatever stripe. And I think that's where the problem comes, because this isn't just about a fight against elected governments. This is a fight against a series of institutions and a series of treaties which admit of no alternative. So for us, whatever happens on the 24th of June, we will come back renewed with extra strength and extra energy for the battle ahead. We will continue to fight that battle with our sister organizations across Europe and indeed across the rest of the world. But the key thing for us is who, who are we most likely to be able to beat? Somebody we can see in front of us or a faceless shadowy bureaucracy which nobody knows about? Caroline. John talks about a faceless, shadowy bureaucracy. In actual fact, elements of the European institutions are more democratic even than our own parliament. This government was elected on 24% of the vote. We've got an unelected House of Lords. Um, democracy needs to be tackled both in Westminster and in Brussels. I don't think this is simply a problem of Brussels. But I wanted to raise an issue that's not been raised so far, and that is the whole origins of the EU, which came out of two horrendous world wars when people came together to say that war in the future should be made not only unthinkable, but also impossible. And I think that the EU has played an incredibly important role in helping to keep the peace over the past 70 years. The EU, as we have it today, isn't an abstract project born of some kind of idle philosophizing in continental think tanks. You know, this was literally built on the blood and bones of Europeans killed in the disastrous first half of the 20th century. Now, I don't pretend that the EU has been the only force for peace, but I do think it's been an important player in achieving that. And I think in an uncertain, in an uncertain world, we would be very reckless to throw that away. Well, thank you both, John and Caroline, for passionately uh, addressing such an important issue for our society. Uh, now it's up for people, uh, listeners and, and uh, wider uh, voters out in society to decide what they want to vote for on Thursday, 23rd of June. Thanks again, guys. Thank you. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation an independent think tank and charity that campaigns for a fairer, sustainable economy. Find out more and get involved at neweconomics.org. Hello, everybody. Um, if you're a first-time listener, welcome, 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 welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast. Uh, we are a weekly economics podcast um, with some lols, uh, and we very much enjoy your company. So um, please... Uh, Go and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from, whether it is on an app or on an MP3 player or um, in the library. Um, and um, make sure that you can get it fresh into your um, library card every week. Thank you. <laughs>